everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Two Drunk Fans. I'm back from Baltimore. Gab's back from hot tubbing. How was it, Gab? The hot tub was actually not that hot. Um, it was about lukewarm, but compared to outside in Alaska, the, the hot tub was, was mu- very much welcome. Um, how was Baltimore? It was pretty crazy. It was really fun. I saw a lot of awesome soccer people. You know who you are. And I also got Did you to, just give them the winky, like, clicky thing? With the, with the finger guns? I sure did. Yeah. The audio God equivalent. And um, I have a friend who works in uh, the executive office building. It's attached to the West Wing. And um, I hopped down to D.C. after the convention and got to tour her office and see some fancy Washington stuff. What? Yeah. I was supposed to tour the West Wing itself, but they canceled tours that day because they might have been working on some deal with Iran. I don't know. Something unimportant. Yeah, something that's totally not relevant at all because it didn't go through, right? Yeah. Yeah. God, you so fancy. I RSVP'd and wore nice clothes. Didn't they know I was coming? Why didn't they rearrange their schedule with Iran to, you know, let me walk through the West Wing and hope to meet Michelle Obama? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Could you you imagine getting Michelle Obama on the pod? (laughs) What's the name of your podcast? Uh... Two uh, drunk fans, ma'am. Oh. Well, you know, alcohol's not very good for you, and over here at the Let's Move program. <laughs> yeah, but this is a podcast catered toward adults. Adults. Whatever. The Let's, the Let's Move program is for kids. Let's Move is for all of us, Gab. We want to make America healthier. Whatever. <laughs> So, yeah, Baltimore was great. And while I was at Baltimore, uh, they scheduled a really awesome media hour with Moya Dodd. So she just came in and kind of had a mini press conference with a bunch of journalists. And I was fortunate enough to be allowed to sit in and also ask a couple of questions. So that's what this podcast is all about. Yeah, I was extremely jealous of you when uh, when you said that this is something that you were going to be doing. But, you know, uh, who, like, every day we always get to talk to, you know, FIFA members, um, executive members of FIFA and people who aren't corrupt and uh, are founders of WOSO in different places all over the world. Like, it's no big deal. Yeah, she's only an OG Matilda and a member of the FIFA executive committee and a huge proponent of reform and gender inclusion in FIFA. Whatever. No big deal. We also had Becky Sauerbrunn on this podcast at one point. So, <laughs> you know, that bar is really, really low for us. Moya Da generously sat down and gave an hour of her time. She would have given more, um, but uh, an NSCAA staffer had to come tell her that it had already been an hour. So she, you know, may want to keep to the rest of her schedule. And she was like, hey, you know, you know those Australians. Very little phases them. Schedule. What's the what's the schedule? It was no drop bear, so she wasn't too bothered about it. God. <laughs> <laughs> You're horrible. Here, I'll I'll tell a quick story about meeting Moya Dodd before we um cut to her interview. So I go up to her and I want to mention a friend that we have in common who is Anno Dong, who works at the women's game and covers Australian women's soccer, among many other things, quite brilliantly. And I go up to her and I shake her hand and I'm going to say, hi, I'm friends with Anno Dong, except it comes out all jumbled because I speak very quickly and sometimes I trip over my own words. And I was like, "Uh, I'm 
but the whole time I'm shaking her hand. So essentially, I just held on to her hand way too long while I was trying to force out the words, Hi, I'm friends with Anno Dong. My name is... You have a really good approach to women. <laughs> and introducing yourself. I'm sensing a theme. Yeah. It's not as bad as, hi, Stephanie, I'm also Stephanie, but it's it's almost there. Moya. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's up there because you get extra points because it's Moya fucking Dot. Yeah. Moya Dot has soft hands, by the way. I had a lot of time to figure that one out. Well, when you spend a lot of time in Zurich, I would hope that you get to pamper yourself. Luxury Swiss conditioners. Hmm. And treat 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 yourself. If anyone deserves to treat herself, it's Moya Dodd. Because she's treating the rest of us to a better FIFA. Hopefully. Hopefully. With that in mind, here's Moya Dodd at the NSCAA convention. Tell us about your decision to come here and, and be a part of the convention. Please. Uh, I, I know Amanda Vanderbilt through uh, her work at FIFA, and I knew she was the incoming president here, and uh, she introduced me to Lynn, Bernard Emanuel, um, and she said, well, one day you must come to a convention, and I'm like, well, don't leave it too long, because, you know, I have a one-year tenure at FIFA, and, uh, and maybe I get another year, maybe I don't, but, you know, let's not do next year what we can do now. So uh, she invited me along, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of coming the long way, going the long way home to Sydney from uh, the Ballon d'Or and some meetings in Zurich. So it worked out very well. How was the Ballon d'Or? Well, it was quite good for your country. <laughs> I don't think you can have any complaints. Actually, congratulations. Yeah. Um, no, it was terrific to see. To see, I think the Ballon d'Or after a Women's World Cup is always great because there's there's it's top of mind. There's so many uh, performances that have been very public. It's one of the challenges is seeing these players in action enough. And in a World Cup year, you've seen the big players in action. Uh, and, of course, to see um, Carly win and to see Jill Ellis win uh, as a woman coach, I thought was, was great too, to see her recognised on the highest platform. I mean, it's interesting that women coaches have won most of the world's major tournaments this century. And um, you know, for those who kind of doubt the ability of women coaches, I mean, we're here at a coaching convention, right? So let's talk about women's coaches. But anyone who doubts the ability of women coaches to perform on the big stage only needs to look at the results board for the last mm -hmm. um, several World Cups and Olympic tournaments, and um, you know, the the women are dominating. What do you think is the biggest problem for women in soccer? What is the the biggest problem? The biggest. The biggest. <laughs> or the top three. Problem or opportunity? I always think of them as opportunity, but it's more concise maybe as a problem. Well, you know, I think women are the biggest opportunity for soccer, actually. Let's put it the other way around. I think women are the biggest opportunity for soccer in terms of participation and in terms of the contribution that they can bring off the field. I mean, you, in terms of participation, that's a growth opportunity. That's getting more people playing the game. And I know the US are well ahead of most other parts of the world in that regard, probably thanks to Title IX. But when you look at the participation data, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's streaking ahead of even very, very established football nations. For example, South America. The participation rates are miles ahead of South America. Why? Because you have a law that says you have to give people opportunity. And opportunity is what drives participation. You know, it's not that 
women and girls aren't interested, it's that the opportunity doesn't open up to them. When you create that opportunity, they're there. We've seen that on the field, and I think um, we, we, I hope we will increasingly see that off the field as well in, in roles in, in management, in marketing, in media, in, uh, in coaching especially, and, uh, and in the boardroom. And the opportunity for the game to exploit the whole talent pool instead of half of it mm-hmm. is the reason why I say women are the biggest opportunity for soccer. Well, you mentioned um, they have a blunt or a World Cup year, but we've seen with some of the voting, especially from smaller nations, is that when you don't have a World Cup year and they don't have any exposure to soccer, sometimes voting can get a little bit weird because they just vote based on name recognition of Sterling performance, which also, you know, in smaller soccer nations, they don't get exposed as much women's soccer. So what do you think FIFA can help do to increase participation and exposure in smaller nations, like, say, out of the, you know, after number 40 in the FIFA rankings? Right. No, I do think it's an issue. It's an issue because the women's game is underexposed throughout the world. I mean, we don't get the the UEFA Women's Champions League in Australia, right? I don't think Nadine Kessler has ever been on television in Australia. And she was a winner, right? Uh, so I acknowledge there's an issue. I mean, FIFA's not a media company, but um, so I think we need to look to partners and media all around the world to help create exposure opportunities for um, uh, female footballers. Uh, I think that, I mean, I would like, this is one reason why I would love to see a Club World Cup. Mm-hmm. Because you would have an annual showcase of the best players at the top clubs in the world, uh, which would be a regular reminder and a demonstration of the talents of these players. It, there's not an easy solution. I mean, if, if we FIFA doesn't control the broadcast schedules of all the TV companies on earth, but I think uh, that showing the success of the tournament and the success of the broadcast particularly on Fox uh, during the World Cup, was phenomenal. And they, I, I read a story that said they were budgeting, they, they, they way overshot their original budget on uh, advertising revenues for the broadcast. I mean, this is good news. This shows that the opportunity is there. The eyeballs are there, therefore the dollars should be there. And, you know, that's ultimately the solution, is to make it viable for... Uh, or for companies to see that it's viable to broadcast those games and expose those women. Because when the money is there. Right. Of course, we also have social media, and there's a lot of live streams. There's, uh, you know, there's no editor who can put a red line through your uh, your story about a female athlete anymore if you're on social media. And I think that is one thing that's changed from five, ten years ago even. Uh, it's, it's just uh, an opportunity to bypass the traditional channels and go straight uh, to market and develop that market. And you see that happening, but it doesn't happen over to, to the thought of, of developing a Club World Cup, um, given that, you know, on the men's side, you need to have a Champions League in every federation, and it has to be very tightly organized um, competitions to kind of funnel into that World Cup. What do you... Th- have you given any thought to, like, how FIFA might be able to put mechanisms in place to actually make a, cl- a Women's Club World Cup feasible? given that, you know, there are lots of federations that don't really support the women's game at all, and so it might be difficult to see, like, a South American champion going to do something like that. Interestingly, South America is one confederation that already does hold a club championship for women. South America does, and Europe does. The other four don't, 
right now. Um, I think it would be a big incentive for those others to do so if there were a FIFA Club World Cup. But uh, actually, I think the biggest challenge is the calendar. Um, you talk about the... You made a reference to the number of countries that that play. Um, you know, th there's, there's a, a handful of top leagues in the world and the likelihood is that the best clubs would derive from those leagues. So you don't need to solve an issue in 209 countries. You only need to solve it in the number of uh, uh, countries whose leagues are at the level where they're going to produce contenders in this sort of tournament. Um, there are quite a few ideas floating around. Uh, nothing's nailed down, but I think the the big prize at the end of it all is an annual showcase of uh, the best players in the world. They're going to grab. They're going to gravitate towards the top handful of clubs, um, and you know to be able to be reminded every year. To, you know to see Lotte Shalen, to see you know Carly Lloyd, to see Hope Solo, um, to see Amandine Henri playing on the screen every year all around the world, I think would would be a big step forward from where we are with uh, four yearly World Cups and four yearly Olympics being the only two occasions in that cycle where you see the top players getting uh, coming centre stage on the screens around the world. Been cast as sort of the champion of change and reform of the game from within have I? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is that something that you have sought, wanted, or has it just sort of been placed upon you? It's certainly, that seems to be the impression of folks over here that that's, mm. that's how you're mm. saying. We're not in Zurich every day, we're not even in Europe. Right. But is that a role that you have wanted to, to have, or something that you just sort of been placed upon? Uh, well, I didn't set out to cast myself that way, but I, I do set out to make a difference. Uh, you know, I mean, Zurich's a long way from Sydney, and it's 34 degrees in summer right now, so if I'm going to not be there, I want to be doing something useful. And, you know, and I really think that uh, if you're in a position, then you carry with it the responsibility of that position. And uh, that, that responsibility is to make a contribution and leave the organisation better than you found it, uh, and, and do all you can to bring positive change. Um, so... I think that the opportunity to contribute to that change or to advocate for that change arose in 2015 in ways that none of us really imagined. But that opportunity having arrived, uh, it was clear that this was a moment when change, big changes became not only possible but necessary. And uh, I felt strongly that gender equality should be part of that change and it would alter the landscape. Uh, on many fronts, not that wouldn't just be fair and overdue, but it would also be part of uh, a a better governed FIFA. Do you see women as part of like the rebirth of FIFA after it being the quintessential old boys network? Uh, there's no doubt FIFA needs to change, and I think it's widely acknowledged within FIFA that, that it needs to change. Uh, that's why it's now easier to restate and to um, reinforce this message that women need to be part of that change. Because, you know, meantime, the evidence is piling up in the corporate world that diversity does bring about better decision-making. 
in corporations, in governments. That's why governments all around the world are looking at uh, 30% targets for boardrooms in corporates. Um, the Germans have a, a, a quote around that. In Scandinavia, that's been present for many years because it's acknowledged that decisions are better when you have diversity. So I think you know, better decision-making is something that FIFA needs. And in an environment that has been so overwhelmingly male for so long, it's clear that gender diversity is a big lever of positive change. It's not the only kind of diversity, uh, but but for FIFA, I think you know it's certainly top of the top. Well, I, w- I would put it at the top of the list. I know there's only so much you can tell us about what goes on at Zurich. It, th- it seems certainly for those of us over here that Sunil Galati of the United States and Victor Mattagliani of Canada are trying hard to help in that effort. What what of those two and their and their and their their desire to have more gender equity in world soccer? What do you see of those two? Uh, they've been great supporters. Uh, I mean, obviously Sunil's a colleague on the FIFA Exco, and uh, he's been hugely supportive of this uh, effort. Um, I mean, as you know, the, there have been some changes on the FIFA Exco <laughs> in the last little while. Um, so the environment has changed, and uh, no doubt it will change again as there's a new president uh, coming into the chair on the 26th of February. Uh, you know, there's I, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I, 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 as the future, but I can tell you that Sunil has been uh, a, a huge supporter of this effort, and you'll know, of course, that uh, many of the stakeholders in the US were those who came forward first and loudest in support of it. Uh, obviously, a lot of women's soccer uh, players and ex-players were instrumental in supporting the, the proposals that we made. Um, Julie Foudy, Mary Harvey, there's a long list of current and former US women's national team players who were there, and then it went you know, beyond just women's soccer, and it became, uh, you know, Robbie Rogers got aboard, uh, David Ginola uh, spoke up, and then it went beyond. It went beyond soccer. It went to um, Donna Di Verona came aboard, Billie Jean King, mm-hmm. um, UN Women. I mean, and it's got bigger than not just bigger than soccer, it got bigger than sports. And you know that that just uh, that was very encouraging because at that point you know that. The the pressures for change uh, just can't be ignored at that point. When you have UN women speaking up, um, they're going to be taken seriously by people who are way above my pay grade. So, um, you know that that I think was uh, the the power of those voices was very tangible, and those voices were heard in Zurich. They made a difference. We I I sat in on the uh, the empowering women coaches panel. Uh, I saw you there. And um, I'm curious, um, how, in what ways have you used maybe some of the issues discussed or other issues um, outside of that panel to kind of, in your own experience, maneuver your way through being a woman in many different types of leadership positions over the years? I'm not sure if I completely understand your question. Well, I'm curious, I'm just interested to, if, if in the panel, if there was something that kind of resonated with you in the way that, um, either in the in the legal world or in the, or in the soccer world, um, the, maybe the, the obstacles and perhaps the ways in which you tried to 
you know, develop and maneuver through, um, you know, climbing up the ladder, as it were, and becoming a leader and a mentor yourself to other women? Well, the interesting thing about my position is that I'm a quota. Mm -hmm. Right, so I've um, spoken out a lot in favour of quotas, not because I really like them. I mean, I would really like them to be unnecessary, actually, but um, I do think that unless you've got a well-functioning merit system, then quotas can be a viable, you know, quick way home, quick way of getting to a result that you need to get to, and you can advance change. Although they're imperfect and, you know, you you can criticise quotas for for various reasons, but I think they do more good than bad. So um, as a quota position, I I find myself turning up in a room that I would not have arrived at otherwise. By definition, I would not have arrived in that room otherwise because I haven't come through the same channels. And um, I I think for the the women coaches uh, empowerment discussion yesterday, there are a lot of female coaches who arrive in an environment where the image that you see of a coach, if I say coach, what comes to mind? Probably a male coach, because that's what you grew up with, that's what I grew up with, and that's mostly what we see still, even in women's soccer these days. Um, so uh, I, I guess, and I, I think actually being a, a female coach is one of the most difficult things to be in football. I don't want to discourage anybody here, but I actually have great respect for them because uh, I think the closer you get to the grass, the more there is this unspoken assumption that really you don't really understand this game. Uh, you know, those terrible old stereotypes, the jokes about the offside rule and this kind of thing. I mean, th- th- there is there is a... There is, that's real, you know, that's real for women who are trying to, to take uh, authority in a role that demands that you be very authoritative. You know, there's an old saying that men take charge and women take care. Well, if you're going to be a coach, you've got to take charge, big time, big time. So you have to be what you're not expected to be, and that can come. That can come with a, with a price, with, a, um, uh, with some baggage or... You know, you've got to kind of work that bit harder to get there. So I have a great deal of admiration for female coaches. It's interesting Do you have any to advice to give them. Um, well, I'm not a coach, so I probably. Uh, but you have a world uh, of experience that looks and works with and sees coaches. I'm just curious. Maybe generally in terms of dismantling or entering a power structure that's foreign or actively hostile to you. I, I mean, I would say be confident in your abilities because I see so many wildly qualified female coaches who are given very sparse opportunities. I mean, to begin with, they're almost never given the opportunity to coach men's soccer, which, by the way, is where most of the money is, right? So most of the available wage pool is foreclosed to them. That's before you even begin, right? The second challenge they have is that the, that, um, the jobs they can contest are also contestable by their male colleagues. And I was just in a discussion where there was, they were talking about uh, as those wages have got higher, they've become more contested. Well, that's economics, I'm afraid. But I do think that an investment in a female coach is a good long-term investment because you, you do see this phenomenon when a really successful male coach of a women's team might well get offered a higher-paying gig coaching men. So it's a stepping stone. 
if you invest in a female coach, you mentor her, you support her, you give her opportunities, chances are she's not going to get headhunted to the local men's team. Right? So she's probably going to be in the women's game for a longer period of time. And she'll bring that experience, that quality, uh, she'll bring a longevity to that sport. And it's, it's retention. It's called retention in the business world. You're going to retain that coach. Uh, having invested in her, you, you will benefit from the long-term uh, application of her skills. So I would say to um, women coaches, um, be confident. Put your hand up. Put your hand up for those jobs. Um, I mean, I think there are still issues that the selection panels, I think black coaches would say the same, the selection panels aren't always um, felt to be giving a full hearing to all candidates. Maybe there's still issues there, but don't let that stop you putting your hand up. Uh, because unless you're on that on that list, unless you're on that final list, well, you ain't going to get the job. So, um, you know, I would say be confident, put yourself forward. You're probably a whole lot better than you acknowledge that you are. I talked earlier about FIFA not being a television broadcaster, but I was reading the, the report on the television broadcasting Women's World Cup that FIFA produced, and in particular, the number of hours that the rights holders in various countries and continents put to air. Is there a way, not with a stick perhaps, but that FIFA can nudge some of the broadcasters in some parts of the world where they want to develop the Women's game a little bit? Mm. You, you give them... Soup to nuts package, obviously. If they want yeah, everything's completely produced by you guys, but broadcasters and everything they can have. Is there a way to nudge them a little bit to put more of it on the air? Um, I think it, that's a good question. I, there's a lot of different models as to how you ensure that the game is actually making it onto screens. In Sweden, when they when the women's league uh, was in its early stages some years ago, I think they tied it to the broadcast uh, rights of the men's league, and they said, well. It, it came with a must-carry obligation. So if you want the men's league, guess what? You're taking the women's league and you're going to broadcast it. And that worked in Sweden. It may not work everywhere. I think one of the challenges of FIFA is that you know you have a whole lot of uh, different cultures and broadcasters and you're working with 209 countries. But uh, I do think that um, the quality of what was done in 2015, having extra cameras on the ground, having um, uh, helicopter views, having a lot of stuff in the can that people could draw down from made a big difference. And for the first time, actually, I was I was found myself at games in Canada, and sometimes you look at the game and you think, well, it's really hot, it's kind of a bit slow, you can see the players are struggling to play it at a high pace, and I hope this looks good on TV. And at the same time, I'm getting texts from people saying, this is a fantastic game, you know, you're so lucky to be there. And I'm like, we have the same game. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got out of my chair too often yet. Uh, but this is the difference a good broadcast makes. If you invest in the quality of the production, it actually looks better on TV than it looks when you're yeah. sitting in the stadium. Uh, and we've all sat at those games where there's, you know, 100 people and someone's broadcasting it and you're kind of thinking, you know, it's actually a really good game, but it doesn't come across because there's only three cameras or six cameras and it's, and the, you know, but when you have crowd shots interspersed, it actually lifts the broadcast. Well, guess what? Men's football's been benefiting from that for decades now. And so when you look at the quality of the product, actually there's a big gain to be made it's not the players don't need to be fitter or better or anything. You just need to make make a better broadcast package, and when you do that, you'll see that it 
is entertaining, it's compelling, and people will watch it. So I think investing in the quality of it is one thing that FIFA has done and I hope will continue to do to encourage that. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think also the leads who are selling broadcast rights and some of the national teams who are selling broadcast rights, those things are starting to set a market price. And it's, uh, you do see them very wildly around the world. Sometimes I'm surprised that you know, one game has got $300,000 for an international friendly, and then you kind of see a league where they're paying the, the, the broadcaster to put it on TV. So there, there's, there still seems to be not a very settled market, if you like, for, for, for women's uh, soccer broadcasts. Um, but that will change, and it will change through experience. So get down that path, get a few miles on the clock, and then that market will start to settle. And uh, because it, it is very important that it, that it does flourish, because that's what creates the revenues to create a professionalised game. I guess I was, I was more thinking about the <coughs> about the cup itself, but I know it's only mm. once every four years. Mm. It's sort of it's, you know it's it's the high benchmark in a lot of ways, and you have relationships yes. with your rights holders where. I don't remember exactly what all of them were, but obviously there was a disparity between some countries where you can maybe nudge them next time around and say, hey, look at what they got in this country that maybe you weren't expecting that maybe you put a little more on it than my um, Well, they have it available to them. Um, and, yeah, there are those conversations going on all the time. Uh, you also have to remember that the rights are co-sold with the Men's World Cup rights. So... It's fair to say they're not usually the focus of negotiations. Um, but, you know, that said, I think the, the, the opportunity now, the, the big opportunity now, and indeed one of the calls to action out at the symposium in Canada uh, that FIFA held, was for there to be a big-time commercial strategy to make women's soccer the biggest women's sport on earth, and the Women's World Cup the biggest... Uh, women's sporting property on earth. And it seems to me that that's an entirely sensible ambition. It's the biggest game on earth. It's, uh, there, it, it has both the benefit and the challenge that the men's version of the game is an enormous juggernaut that also generates a lot of money. I mean, if we were talking about rowing, then you couldn't say, wow, you know, Men's rowing is such a great thing. Surely women's rowing can be a great thing because there's nothing to cross subsidise your your entry or to help you, you know, colonise that market if you like. When you're talking about football, you've got all that, and you can cross promote. You can um, leverage the game from from the male professional game into the grassroots, into women's, into youth, into every corner of the game and every corner of the earth. And that's a massive opportunity that I think uh, I hope will be the focus uh, for the women's game because the, the Women's World Cup should be the next breadwinner. Aside from the Men's World Cup, if you look at the other properties, the under-20s, you know, futsal, etc., you know, to my mind, the Women's World Cup is the front of that queue to be the next big breadwinner for FIFA. And um, you know, I, I would urge us all to be part of making that happen. It should be entirely feasible to achieve that in the next decade. With the uh, discussion of women's gender equity in FIFA, a lot of the names you mentioned, Julie Foudy, Mary Harvey, and now we've got Abby Wombach joining. Mm -hmm. um, is there a worry that because the most 
powerful footballing nations in the women's side anyway tend to be at the moment western nations and that this might create um, a voice for women in FIFA that is not necessarily racially diverse or doesn't represent the views of a lot of women from smaller nations like you know for example Afghanistan has a women's team that is struggling and it has is facing a lot of you know crazy issues or do you, do you think that there should be a move to create a more intersectional movement that takes into account women from nations that aren't necessarily supported by their federations or do you think that you kind of have to take it one step at a time? Well, I, I wouldn't set out to determine the priority of progress around the world. I think all progress is good progress. Um, I think if you go to a FIFA gathering, um, you realise that you know the US is one of 109 countries who are there. You go to a, a symposium, a women's football symposium, as we have each World Cup, and there's, there's obviously every nation on earth is invited to that. I think 171 actually attended in, in Canada. Um, and I, I hear the same challenges actually in every country on earth, from the biggest to the smallest, the same challenges in getting uh, a role in decision making and in getting resourcing of the women's game. They are two common challenges that you, you hear everywhere. I do think that there is a role and maybe a responsibility on the more developed nations to lead the way, uh, especially in showing that the game can be professionalised and can reach great heights to entertain and engage uh, people just as, as men's football does. And in men's football you've seen that as well. I mean, there are countries that don't have a professional league, uh, that barely have any league at all. Um, and even if you're from that country, you can still go play in the Bundesliga or the EPL if you're good enough, right? Well, it's good that there is a Bundesliga and an EPL for that player from East Timor to aspire to play in. And, you know, I think it's inevitable that some countries will be ahead of others. Um, I think I, I'm a supporter of progress in the most advanced countries, not because I want to leave the others behind, but because if you can demonstrate progress, then that progress can be shared. Uh, so, you know, to me, all progress is good progress. Um, I, I mean, if you're in a FIFA environment, you're very conscious that the world doesn't consist of just the Western nations. Um, I'm half Chinese, sort of second generation in Australia. Well, my mother was Australian-born. I've got, you know, ancestors from various countries in Europe, I think. Not even sure where they come from. Germany, Ireland, England, you know. Uh, and and at every FIFA intergeneration event, you're mixing with people from from all over Earth. I meet some amazing women um, from places like Iran and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, who are absolute hands down champions of the game. Who you probably never you'll never read about them or hear about them, but they are battling for the right to play. Can you just expand on a point that And watch, made? actually, in Iran, to enter stadiums and watch football. Mm -hmm. Another big battle. Mm -hmm. Can you it's expand amazing. on the point that you've made, just how soccer can transform society if it's a showcase of inclusion, integrity, mm. and respect? Like, why is that, why is that important to you? Why well, do you believe that? Well, you know, we still live in a world where um, a girl born today and a boy born today will face 
very different opportunities and constraints in their life. And, you know, that's not fair. Um, it's also not good for society to have this kind of imbalance. And I think soccer is one of the few things that can dramatically alter that on a global scale with an effectiveness that you just can't achieve in a classroom or by handing out pamphlets. I think if society sees, if a, if a boy growing up sees that a girl on the field next to him can play football as an equal, then that is an enormously powerful message for her to promote her participation in education, in the workforce and in all aspects of society. It becomes normalised from childhood. And you know, if you talk to any, you talk to the World Bank, talk to any of these global organisations, talk to the UN and look at what they see as the big levers of change in a society's well-being, uh, economic and, and societal well-being, they'll very often point to the women and they'll say, if you want to improve society, improve the lot of the women, improve the opportunities that they face, give them the opportunity to, to be to participate in wealth generation and in economic productivity. That's incredibly good for the country uh, if women can do that. So, you know, we're just a sport, right? I mean, having women participate in sport and girls participate in sport is a wonderful thing of itself and we're all passionate about it. But when you stand back from that and you say, well, actually, there's an even bigger thing we can achieve if we get this right. That is to improve the lot of women and girls in society and thereby make a step change in the well-being of society because I think all societies are better off if women can fully participate in them, if all citizens can fully participate in their societies. So, you know, that's that's sort of bigger than that's bigger than football. And football's pretty big. Given that um, we're at this convention, and I may be wrong about this, but I'm guessing there probably aren't too many countries that have conventions like these Correct. for coaches or for even Correct. executives and administrators. I wonder if, would it be sensible or even feasible for FIFA or maybe at FIFA's encouragement other to other countries to create and support conventions like these that deal a lot with issues of female coaches and potentially even for administrators and executives like yourselves in the sense that it's very beneficial for people to be able to gather, share ideas and realize that they're not necessarily isolated in whatever situation they might be in. Um, well, you know, when people gather, that's when ideas happen and innovation occurs. Uh, I, I do think it's a challenge for the women's game particularly because actually there's a lot of conferences on, on football and they're nearly all populated by men, right? You can go to a conference every other week, soccer, ex-leaders, whatever. There's a whole calendar full of them. But mostly women's football is not a focus. I think creating the space where there is that focus for engagement does make an enormous difference. Uh, I think the FIFA committees and symposiums, confederation engagements, often around tournaments, they are the places where uh, people gather. The International Women's Day, last year FIFA began a, uh, a conference and there'll be another one in 2016, uh, which I think is great. I mean, you actually get people together and engage and that's when stuff happens, that's when progress is made. I think you're right, the US is, is pretty unique in this coaches association. Certainly there's nothing like this in Australia. In Europe, of course, there are pan-European conventions. Um, but progress comes out of human engagement, right? 
So I'm only five of it. <laughs> People were listening to you today and they've seen the tweets of the excerpts and things you said. They eventually say, hey, but FIFA's doing a lot of good stuff for women's soccer. But the perception of FIFA, certainly in this country and in some of the countries in, in Western Europe, the ones that have, their media have put the spotlight on everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot of the public, is probably fairly dim. Uh, not always, not always reasonably, but it, but it is. Yeah, I do know that. I did get booed by fifty thousand people at the World well, Cup. I'm not remembering <laughs> what you specifically. Remember. I know, yeah. I know. But it, it's anyone in a blue I, suit. I, I was, was going to bring that up and say to those folks who see FIFA as the members of the executive committee who are in the news all the time, right? And don't always, and have lost some of their faith in the organization because of it. I mean, there have been debates in some of the Western European media about do we need FIFA at all? Right. What do you say to them, given that FIFA is not just the people who are in the museums? That is an incredibly good question. (laughs) And it goes to the heart of why the organization exists and why I am in it, I think. And I'm in it because I believe that. Football needs a, a FIFA. Football needs a strong world governing body because that governing body, every four years, holds a thing called the Men's World Cup, which generates enough money to fund development to the tune of half a million dollars every day for the next four years. In other words, one of its important functions is to redistribute wealth to fund development from the top of the ga- of top of the male professional game to every corner of the earth to every corner of the game be it youth women's futsal beach disability now, this is what becomes possible uh, in a sport that is that big and that uh, capable of generating revenues like i say if we were rowing it would be different and i think Having a FIFA, in in all of the controversies that we've seen, it's easy to forget that that is one of the most fundamental contributions that a world-governing body can make. Um, And, you know, those who contemplate the the demise of uh, the world-governing body or express a wish for it should be careful what they wish for because I don't think you could ever quite recreate something... Um, as capable as we have for doing good on a global scale, not only for the sport, but for society. And that that opportunity is worth fighting for. A lot of the time when people talk about growing the game and popularity of women's leagues, they focus on uh, broadcast deals and better TV deals. What do you think are other methods of improving the popularity? Um, you mean getting eyeballs or or getting growing the fan base? Well, social media obviously is massive. I mean, you're now seeing big leagues, big rights-owning leagues, um, look at direct-to-consumer opportunities, so not even necessarily going to... Like, they're creating options for themselves. I mean, the the, um, Egg Ball League in Australia uh, (laughs) is, is, uh, I know, very keen on that idea. Um, I think... uh, Digital and virtual gaming is also, I think it's way bigger than people 
the FIFA like game think about it is really why it's soccer spots. But there's more hours. the sport in this country. Yeah. Right. I mean, suddenly, you know, some kid on the other side of the world is suddenly a fan of Wolfsburg or something. It's like, well, who do you know about Wolfsburg? Because they've, they've played it on their iPad. Um, so you might see a correlation now that there are actual women's national teams in FIFA 16. Great. Which is great. <laughs> Thank you, EA. Thank you. Uh, it's the old saying, you can't be what you can't see. So for, you know, a seven or eight-year-old girl to see a game where... She can see Alex Morgan and put her in a team. I mean, that's kind of as it should be, actually. It's as it should be. Uh, so I think that's another big opportunity to bring the game to people who might not otherwise see it. And, and uh, it's amazing. People actually are fans of watching other people play <laughs> games that are completely fictional and virtual. You make a lot of money at it. And I'm sure there's more hours of virtual football play than real football these days. So let's not, <laughs> let's not forget that. It's, I'm not saying it's a good thing, necessarily. <laughs> but, but it's a reality, right? I mean, kids are in the back of the car. They might, take them, they might spend as much time in the car as they spend on the field on the way to training. Well, they're probably doing this all the way. That's my guess. So I think um, digital, wherever that's leading us, right? And this is not a... This is a and evolu- a very fast evolution. Um, I think that's one of the key things because it's uh, it bypasses the established gatekeepers, potentially bypasses the established gatekeepers, and it means that the sports can speak directly to their, their fans. And athletes too, can, which is another whole dimension. Cool. Just give a few words on the two tournaments we have coming up this year uh, in Jordan. Papua New Guinea and like the new frontiers there and what you're excited for about those. Yeah. Uh, well, Jordan is first up. I think it starts at the end of September and goes through three or goes for a month, basically, mm-hmm. into October. Um, this is a really interesting part of the world and, you know, I'm from Asia, so it's close to my heart to see a women's under-17 World Cup come to Asia, to go to the heart of the Middle East, uh, or West Asia, we call it, and... Uh, I mean, this is a part of the world that has challenges politically and there are a lot of challenges for women in that part of the world. And to showcase a tournament where young, healthy, active, strong, capable women come together and put on a show of football is, well, that's just going to be... It's going to be a pleasure to see it. And I hope it makes... uh, a difference to mindsets in the region and around the world. Uh, we've seen the Under-17 World Cup go to some uh, interesting places, Costa Rica, Azerbaijan, uh, and now Jordan. And that's one of the great things about these junior tournaments in FIFA is that it's a global tournament, but it can come to a place that probably isn't going to uh, or, or hasn't hosted a uh, the, the grown-up version, but it really is able to put on a show at junior level. I was in Costa Rica for a part of the time for the last one, and it was amazing. Like, the whole country was stopped almost, and and it was the game in town. They packed out the stadium. 35,000 people came to watch the opening match. They were, you know, for seven, to watch 17-year-old girls play soccer. The nation pretty much stopped for that. So it is a, it is a chance to leave a big legacy of... Uh, uh, gender inclusion in the country and in the region and uh, I'm excited for that in both Jordan and in New Guinea where again there are big challenges faced by women in that country there is a lot of gender based violence and 
again one of I think one of the one of the ways that that can be challenged is to have women playing sport as strong, capable human beings, especially in a sport that's considered a male sport historically. I mean, that's something that demands equality. And to see that, to have it visible, to have it showcased, to have government behind it, is a big thing. And again, I hope it leaves a really positive legacy for women and girls in, uh, in New Guinea and in that region. Oh, so, um, so female athletes are at a higher risk for ACLs, concussions, alongside other injuries. What do you think FIFA could do to help research into that? Uh, there's been a fair bit of research into that. Uh, it's a tough one, ACL. I've done an ACL. In fact, I did it here in the US some years ago. So if anyone finds my ACL here, <laughs> I'd like it back, please. Um, there is a, there's a medical department, a medical, a medical committee in FIFA. Um, Astrid Jung is one of the doctors who's done quite a bit of, had quite a big focus on, on women's sport. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're not kind of a medical institute, but there are FMARC centres all around the world which uh, gather data. I'd love to say we were getting close to solving the, the ACL because, I'm, as I say, it's a subject near my heart. Um, but, you know, I think as the game professionalises, I would hope the conditions are more controllable so that people are less prone to these things. I mean, one of the challenges, for example, is that a player often signs for only a short period of time at a club. So you have this coach for like six months and then you have someone else, then you have the national ticker. So you're in and out of these different training environments, um, maybe travelling long distances in between, not getting paid terribly much, so you're probably living on two-minute noodles or something. That's not going to be good for you either. So you know, these sorts of semi-professionalism challenges, I think, can, can maybe contribute to environments where injury rates are high um, and maybe levels of care and rehab are not at the... At where we would like them to be. So I think it's all part of a, a moving environment where, you know, as these pieces of professional professionalism come into the jigsaw and take their place, that better medical research and better medical care would be part of, part of that. I don't know that I, I've, if yeah. I've answered your question or uh, not. But you mentioned the conditions. I think the Australian women's team to qualify for the Olympics will have five games in ten days and... The U.S. cancelled a game in Hawaii due to the poor turn. Do you think those that conditions will just gradually improve over time, or do you think there's specific efforts that need to be made to address it? Um, well, that the match schedule in 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 Asia has has been the subject of um, discussion in Asia in the Women's Committee and uh, in the competitions framework, and I am hopeful that this will be the last time we see a tournament at senior level where players have to play every second day. Um, that said, often teams change their personnel and it, is, and it becomes a contest of depth right? uh, as much as it is a contest of your first 11. So it does alter the way the competition plays out. Uh, in the end, that, that is, these things all come down to a question of money. Uh, sometimes um, you're in an environment where the members want more teams and therefore a more packed schedule rather than less teams and one that's more spread out given on a given budget. And members will sometimes seek that rather than seek a, a more expanded schedule. With concussions, specifically, mm. Mm. 
There's been a lot of research done. There's been a lot of standards and practices, certainly in this country and Canada, that have been instituted. Uh, there have been some calls for maybe some rule changes on injury substitutions for a player to come out of a game and come back in and things like that. But there's, and if you could address that, but, and then also address the mental, the perception of concussion and of brain injury, what the American football community likes to call getting your bell rung and going back in the game, and things like that. What can FIFA do about that? Because attitudes are changing in individual countries, but it might take FIFA, whether through a campaign or rule changes on injury and substitutions, medical standards, whatever it may be, there are a lot of different things. It may take FIFA coming down from the top on this and telling everybody what they have to do. Well, the, the three-minute rule was um, brought in when? A while back? The idea that you can't come back, you've you got to stop the game for three minutes and yeah. clear the issue. Um, so I think that raised a lot of awareness. Uh, it, it's interesting because I think awareness, awareness on concussion issues is very high in this country and I'm not sure if that's because so much sport is played in colleges and high schools where it's a supervised environment and there are legal liabilities and responsibilities and you are kind of litigious in this country. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that has something to do with the higher levels of uh, reported concussions. Um, I, I, I sense that it's not perceived as, as big an issue in other parts of the world as it is in the US. I know US soccer has made a... Um, you know, under 12s and, and heading is, is uh, being addressed now. Um, so I, I think, and given, of course, the enormous issues with NFL in this country, I think probably the you're on the vanguard of uh, um, considering these issues. Um, what can FIFA do? Well, um, I think at the, through the medical committee that and, and IFAD, uh, their input into IFAD, um, there've been there's been a growing consciousness of these issues. At the end of the day, you also want the game to go on, and people don't want to miss the game. So it's this balance between a coach and a player, maybe wanting to go on, and medical people saying, well, maybe you shouldn't, and, and how you strike the right balance of protection as well as participation in that environment. Um, I mean, if you saw the men's World Cup final, I think it was right. Uh, yeah. I mean, he wasn't going off. He wasn't going off. Uh, so you know, the, the, it, it's more than meets the eye, I guess. And there are there are many participants in that decision as to how a player participates, and uh, to draw a line, to draw a hard and fast rule, and take the decision out of people's hands uh, is something you can't. Uh, well, I wouldn't dismiss it, but I think you have to you have to take a lot of views into account before you do that. I mean, do you take it out of the player's hand? You say, well, sorry, you're off for a week, ten days. You're off. I mean, you could decide someone's season that way. You could decide their career that way. Um, so when you draw those lines and you make mandatory rules, you need to be very careful that you've, you've got that right. Or you leave discretion and you enable people to make choices. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Moya Dodd at the NSCAA convention. A lot of really good stuff there. She's pretty much leading the charge uh, for diversity in FIFA. I think not necessarily just gender diversity, because as we heard in the interview, there are certainly concerns about racial diversity in FIFA as well. But she pointed out that 
part of the nature of FIFA is you can't bury your head in the sand and pretend like your nation or your confederation is the only thing that exists because the nature of FIFA is that includes so many different nations. Like she said, once you're in a room with all these members, you, you look around, you're surrounded by them. You just can't avoid the reality that diversity must be a part of FIFA. Yeah, I'm excited to see um, what sort of change she's able to to lead the charge on. And um, hopefully we're getting to a point where FIFA is going to start becoming a little bit more reputable, um, a little bit more trustworthy. And all of the the changes that we've seen, we actually see we actually see change, and we don't just see like a changing of a guard, you know. Just old corruption out, new corruption in, some lip service to. Yes, of course, we'd love to change. Like change how? Can we see some tangible results of that change? I mean, I think there's a lot of underserved people that would maybe benefit from FIFA pulling its head out of its own butt. Oh, totally, totally. It's got to be pretty dank up there. That head's been up there for a while. Well, not only has the head been up there for a while, but it's been operating without oxygen for a while as well. (laughs) So not only are we passing out frequently up the butt of FIFA, but who knows what else is going on while the head is passed out. So on that note, uh, on our next episode, I'm sure we'll be talking about the Ireland friendly and... You know, any possible Carly, roster Carly changes? Carly and, and Becky. Yeah, Carly and Becky as captains. Maybe we might be looking at some of the draftees. And there might so, even be a rumor of a schedule. Maybe. Schedule usually drops sometime in February. So, early February. Early February. So early February. There's plenty to talk about in our next episode, but for now, we hope you enjoyed this hour with Moya Dodd from the FIFA Executive Committee. And also, we we crossed another person off the bucket list. So slowly but surely, we're knocking these people out. Yeah. You know who I want to get on the podcast? Tasha Kai. I'll go to Hawaii. I volunteer. As tribute? Do you, we should do Two Drunk Fans Hawaiian style. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll save up for a round trip to Hawaii. Why don't you leave your comments with who you'd like to see on the podcast if money, time, and prestige were no issue? <laughs> Sorry we couldn't do an actual podcast from NSCAA. It was crazy. A lot of people running around. A lot of people to talk to. Maybe next year. Plus, there was only one of us there. Maybe next year, once someone's figured out how to use calendars. Okay, bye. (sighs) Hmm.